First of all, I want to open up and thank Philip for a marvelous message this morning. He challenged me. He uh, stirred my gray cells above my neck, and uh, we're all ready to go into the Revelation this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the last book of uh, the Bible, the book of Revelation. And if you're not familiar with Revelation, I don't plan to expound or exposit the whole book uh, this morning, but I would like to share uh, some thoughts with you about what's really going on there. When I was up at Faith Church yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I lose track of time when I come here to Memphis or Chattanooga, the other end of the state. I shared with the audience that was there the model that I use for a covenant relationship between God and his people. I essentially thought that in Exodus 19 through 23, we have step by step in a covenant making procedure that was very familiar to the audience in the ancient Near East. And I tried to draw parallels between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For example, at the end of the covenant-making procedure, there was a meal. There was a meal and the elders of Israel went up the mountain and they sat in the presence of God, in the presence of God the Son, no doubt, and uh, they ate and drank and he did not extend his hand against them because they were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant and that guaranteed that they were in covenant relationship and that he could not essentially harm them. And we have the same thing going on in the new covenant with the Lord and his disciples in what we call the upper room discourse. In the old covenant, the sacrifice came first <coughs> and then the meal. In the new covenant, the meal comes first and then the sacrifice lamb uh, who was slain from the foundation of the world, leaves the table and goes out to be betrayed by one of his men. So there's a parallel concept. What I did not emphasize up at uh, Faith Church was there's a parallel concept too between the oath of the covenant, uh, the oath of the covenant being <coughs> where all the people agreed, they heard the terms of the treaty, they heard the terms of the relationship. They heard the, you know, Moses reading the legal document that would bind them to God uh, forever. And uh, they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will obey, we will do it, we will do it. He said that two times for emphasis. At that point in time, they had taken an oath of the covenant. They had sworn an oath of loyalty to the great King of Kings the Lord Yahweh Elohim. And when uh, you and I go and get baptized, we say, when we come out of the water, hopefully, Jesus is Lord. I'm not sure I said Jesus is Lord when I was recent. I was recently baptized, by the way. How old was I, 72 or? I was in 70. And, uh, I said some other words when I came out of the baptistry because the, the uh, deacons had forgot to turn the heater on in the baptistry. <laughs> and, uh, and I might have died right there if uh, my heart had stopped. Uh, and that was before my heart surgery and uh, what I discovered there. So when you enter the covenant, 
when you get baptized, it's not related to your faith. It is related to your commitment. So when you and I say Jesus is Lord and get baptized, we are saying we are dead to sin. We are dead to the world. We are dead to everything. And our uh, total loyalty, our sufficient fealty is toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign Lord of the new covenant ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 1 because uh, John gives us some uh, interesting statements there. We're looking at verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, the Roman province of Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the future ruler over the kings of the earth. Notice who Jesus Christ is according to John in this passage. He is the faithful witness. In that role, in that office, he served as a prophet. When he was here among us, walking among us, he was the prophet uh, from Galilee, prophet from Nazareth. Everyone, uh, when he came to Jerusalem, announced that he was a faithful prophet. He gave the testimony about what God was like and what God expected of us. And secondly, he was the firstborn from the dead. When he offered to sacrifice for sins, he was raised from the dead and installed in the heavenly places as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, every once in a while, you get one of these shirts, these t-shirts that have uh, Jesus is the line of Judah and all this, this stuff, uh, these titles that the Lord holds. And there's one title that's always missing, it seems to me. Could be wrong about that, but I've looked rather carefully at these t-shirts. And the t-shirts never seem to mention that he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I would suggest that is a blinder that we have on, similar to the, 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 the focus uh, or the filter that uh, Brother Philip was talking about. We don't realize that he is serving as a high priest and therefore that gives us great confidence because he, as our high priest, confesses our sins to God, pleads his own intercessory blood and enables us to walk as free men and women in Christ. So the ministry of Christ in the heavenly places in the heavenly tabernacle is a very vital ministry uh, to the believer in this present time. And then last but not least, he is a ruler or over the kings of the earth. And I would insert the, the word future ruler over the kings of the earth. Kings of the earth now are under the control of Satan. Satan is a king, he is the prince of the power of the air. He rules everything from the atmosphere on down and he has many, many assistants and the, the, uh, the earth is basically divided up into geographical spaces because as Dr. Heiser has pointed out to us, all of the principalities and powers and dominions and spirits of wickedness in heavenly places are geographical terms. So there's a demon spirit that is in charge or assigned to this church. There is a demon spirit that is assigned to this territory uh, around here. And it behooves us when we gather together 
to bind those or to ask the Lord to send angels to deal with them so that they don't interfere with the services that we have to offer and the worship that we have to offer. And that's why the, uh, the music uh, ministry is so important. I love the Old Testament, uh, Jehoshaphat going into battle. He said, well, what we really need to do is send the choir members out first into the battle. And what was that all about? Well, Satan can never stand to be around the praises of God. Even when King David was a, uh, or King Saul was being troubled and tormented by a dem demonic spirit, when David would play praises of God and psalms on his harp, then the demon spirit would leave him. The spirit of depression that he embraced or had assigned to him because of his disobedience. So, anyhow, that's who uh, God is. That's who the seven spirit beings before uh, God's presence, the seven angels. That's who Christ is. And look at verse 6. And he has made us to be kings and priests to God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. You and I, unless we realize that we are destined to be priests and kings in the future kingdom, uh, have not yet embraced the full message as uh, Brother Philip was talking about. Now, having said that, and having said that we have a suzerain vassal relationship with God based on the Old Testament model and the New Testament model, then what happens if we are disobedient? What does the king do when his vassal becomes disobedient or in danger or in some way wandering away from the, the expectations he has in the covenant? Well, believe it or not, he sends a messenger warning us, sends a messenger to warn us but this messenger is not just any ordinary mess messenger. This is a prophet. And to make sure the prophet has the correct message to give, he actually calls him into his courtroom and says, this is what you're supposed to tell my rebellious vassal. And the, uh, the prophet then ultimately becomes the ambassador from the kingdom of heaven on high. He ultimately becomes a lawyer. And when he comes to preach or prophesy to the rebellious vassal, he prosecutes a very uh, formula-driven device called a covenant lawsuit. The Old Testament prophets <clears throat> are really lawyers of the covenant, and they're called up to heaven to the divine council they're given the words that they're supposed to say, and then they show up on the scene in the nation of Israel, and they prosecute a covenant lawsuit, which is a very standard, uh, repeatable, easily learned model for our interaction. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden with uh, when the Lord shows up. I love the music that uh, is played and selected for our our edification during these conferences. Uh, one of the ones that I always have trouble with is I come to the garden alone. Because when you look at the passage of scripture that that uh, verbiage is taken out of, it's not good news when you don't come to the garden alone. The Lord is showing up, but he's showing up to judge. The Lord comes, it says literally marching to through the garden 
and he says, Adam, where are you? And he's not asking for information at that time. He's asking a rhetorical question, saying essentially, you ought not to be hiding in the bushes right now, son. Have you actually taken from the fruit? Have you disobeyed me? And then the excuses come forward. But that, that interaction there is organized like a covenant lawsuit. So I want to, us to go later on in the book of Revelation to the church without love, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. When I was a young man, one of my favorite songs was uh, Gene Pitney had a, a song that uh, said, The Town Without Pity. Well, this is the church without love. Okay, let's look at it. And we have some inter uh, interpretive questions in this section. Direct your attention to the screen. I hope the screen is showing up well for you. First of all, who are the angels and why are they mentioned? Well, I said uh, when we were up at Faith Church that one of the functions of the, when you're in a covenant-making procedure, you have witnesses to the covenant, and in the case of biblical revelation, the witnesses are angels. And angels are witnesses, and therefore they execute the curses or the blessings of the covenant. God doesn't do personal work. He sends angels to do it. And then we look at this letter, and each though each letter is to a historic church, we are told directly that each message applies to all the churches. So you can't just uh, condemn one church. You have to say, let's learn what's going on here so that we can apply it to all the churches in history and especially to our own church. Why does not the structure of these so-called letters conform to the examples of epistolary literature in the New Testament or even examples we have of secular letters? The answer is that, simply put, they are not letters in our standard understanding of the term. And when in doubt, go to the Old Testament. Can I get an amen, Philip? <laughs> amen. Uh, there is an Old Testament legal procedure that closely approximates what is going on here. The Old Testament, as I said, which reflects a suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain had a legal procedure available to correct the behavior of the vassal. And the lawsuit opened with an identification of the plaintiff. The plaintiff, uh, in this case, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest in the heavenly places. And by the way, uh, for, uh, just for our information, the high priest had a legal function and a legal authority. When Paul went to the high priest to get letters to arrest the Christians, he was acting in terms of the legal structure of the synagogue system. So uh, just because Jesus is an exalted high priest does not mean he does not have a legal authority. So the, Every letter, every covenant lawsuit, every address in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 comes and speaks to a historical, geographical uh, church and identifies the plaintiff who is part and parcel of the first throne vision in chapter 1. In other words, it's as if you take a piece of the vision of uh, the Lord in chapter 1, and introduce it in each case to each one of the churches. Then there's an acknowledgement of the defendant's works. I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. Then 
plaintiff presents his case for the prosecution, then he articulates the required corrective behavior, and then he threatens them with contingent curses based for abuse. In every letter, there is a command to repent. And if you don't repent, then this bad thing is going to happen to you. It's a disciplinary device. It's a function of the covenant. Then the defendant is allowed to enter in matters of extenuation and mitigation. And last but not least, the letter always closes with what we call a salvation oracle. Do we all understand what salvation is? I'm not so sure we do. Salvation is past, present, and future. By grace, you have been saved, not of yourself, not of works, lest any man boast. In Ephesians chapter 2, the saving is past, perfect, participle, and continues on in faith through time. And I would suggest to you that it's the salvation of your spirit in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul says in Corinthians, he said, for those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. So there is a concept of being saved, present continuous tense, and that is the salvation of your soul. And last but not least, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, it says, the angels are sent out to minister to those of us who will inherit salvation, that is future salvation, that is kingdom talk that we're talking about. It's the salvation of the body. So spirit, soul, body. Spirit is saved to the uttermost. Salvation of the soul is problematical because it requires sanctification and obedience. And then ultimately future salvation is in the kingdom of God. So there's always contingent blessings for obedience, contingent blessings and contingent curses. So I'm a free, free will Baptist now, and this is what essentially turned me from a Calvinist to a free will Baptist. If you have a reward system that's contingent, you have to have free will to make it work. And the Bible repeatedly uses the concepts of rewards, loss of rewards, and to have the, that function correctly, you have to have free will of the individual believer. Okay, why do I believe this is a lawsuit model? First of all, I believe the lawsuit model because as I argued last week, this is a, from a previous teaching, in chapter 1, verse 9 through 20, we have a prophetic commissioning ceremony whereby John the prophet is commissioned to prosecute Christ's lawsuit against the churches. In Jeremiah, it says, if you are a prophet of God, if you are a true prophet of God, you will have been caught up to the divine council and heard the words exactly. And anyone who claims to be a prophet and has not seen the Lord and has not been caught up to the divine council, you should not pay attention to them because they're a false prophet. Uh, that's why Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He's showing his authority uh, to prosecute a prophetic covenant lawsuit. Now, 
every letter starts out with thus says. Uh, I think uh, they translate it poorly. They say these things says, the first and the last, who's dead, etc., etc. Every lawsuit, and you have to trust me on this, is tade and lege in the Greek. It's a formula that comes from the Old Testament where whenever Nebuchadnezzar makes a proclamation, he says, thus says Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the king of kings, the land, king of the four lands, etc., etc. It occurs in the decrees of the Persian king, thus says this. The lawsuits are organized in such a way that they are addressed to both historical churches and the church through time. In other words, we can see a continuing effort or a continuing testimony in these churches that run all the way from the first century to whenever the rapture occurs. I, don't, I haven't backed off yet my opinion that the rapture occurs in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, do we have any models in the Old Testament that support this? The Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, it is organized as a covenant lawsuit. And it's proleptic, that means it's pronounced before it happens. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you a lawsuit that's going to endure through time. It's going to be a continuing testimony against you as a nation of Israel. It's going to keep on enduring and it's going to keep on testifying. So when God has the seven covenant lawsuits against the churches, it endures through time. It's not just a historical reference. It's a reference that continues through time until the end of church history. Mysterious seven angels. I know some people take the view that the seven angels are the seven pastors. And speaking for myself, I've never aspired to be an angel. I'm using that as a, um, they say that the angels are the messengers. Well, that could be. But uh, Heiser has proven in his book on angels that uh, the grammar does not support that. The churches are appealed to as not angels. The angels are the witnesses to the covenant. And if they don't repent, then the angels are responsible for the discipline, the cursing and the blessing of the current covenant. The prophet, when announcing the lost suit, would cry, Hear, O heavens, the angels, give ear, O earth. The local church for the lord has a case against his people whenever you see the word case in the scripture it's talking about a lawsuit arrangement next line of proof on this particular genre of literature there's a plethora which in case you don't know the word, it means an abundance of legal terminology in these letters. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 2, the church has examined false apostles, and that examination is a legal term. The apostles were found uh, means the result of a judicial investigation. They were found to be false apostles, false missionaries, false messengers, false in this this is the meaning of perjury. And remember, again, as Philip said last message here this morning, remember has a legal uh, field of meaning. Now, 
my understanding of remembering is act in the present time based on a promise you made before. So when God remembered Israel in captivity in Egypt, he was making sure or was calling to mind. He wasn't saying, oh my goodness, I had a vassal down there and forgot, forgot about him. No, he was acting when you have a remembrance in the scripture or call to remembrance, you are acting in the present based on something that has happened or something that was said before. And this will help us in understanding this letter to Ephesus. Uh, more proof that this is a lawsuit. According to Hoffman, the place of judgment is usually specified. According to Hoffman, there had to be a description of the plaintiff. So here's the description of the plaintiff. Look in chapter two, verse one. He holds the seven stars in his hand. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the seven angels of God's presence. We have already uh, seen these magnificent seven in operation in Ezekiel chapter nine. Ezekiel says, I saw seven men or angels, one who had a scribe, he was writing, and they went through the city and they, they killed people. Seven deadly angels. As stated already, these angels are witnesses to the covenant between the Lord and his people, the church, but they are also responsible for maintaining covenant discipline. Angels attend worship services to make sure that we are being orderly and disciplined in our approach to the Lord. So the Lord, in expanding his title as plaintiff, warns the church that he has covenant angels under his command if they do not respond in a proper way to the charges being brought by his prophet John. What is the Lord doing right now? He is walking. I met Leroy uh, this last week. We spent some time together. And Leroy likes to walk. I understand. Uh, that was the testimony of Mark and Diane Summers. Leroy likes to take a walk. And I wish I could join him now. But the Lord is not just sitting around uh, looking cool in heaven. He is actually walking in the midst of the seven golden landscapes. To walk among is to exercise dominion over Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. He is the one to whom the churches are accountable. Sometimes we fall into a mistake here. We say, this is Tracy's church. This is Alan's church. This is so-and-so's church. This is whatever TV preacher you like to follow his church. Well, that's not true. It is the Lord's church. The under shepherds serve at his discretion. In every letter and lawsuit, there's an opportunity given for the defendant to argue for his works. And in every case, the Lord says, I know or I acknowledge your works. Do we all understand the importance of works? We have a skewed idea of works in the Christian faith because as soon as you say works, somebody will say, well, no, we're grace, we're not works. Well, the problem with that is that God has foreordained good works for us to do. And we'll see in another slide here. What's the first category of works? Discernment, deciding whether these missionaries that showed up at your church were in fact orthodox or not. Second category of your works was perseverance, continuing to do the right thing through time. 
John 14, 12, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and literally more numerous works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Uh, Jesus raised the dead. And some translations translate this as saying, greater works shall he do than, uh, than these because I go to the Father. That's not the force of the translation there. The, the thrust of it is that because Jesus went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples and to the apostles, therefore they could do more numerous works than the Lord actually did. New Testament view of works subsequent to salvation. Matthew 5, 16, as the purpose of good works is evangelistic activity. People will come to Christ because of your good works. Titus 2, 7 encourages Titus to tell the people that there should be a pattern of good works. Titus 2, 14 says that the people of God should be zealous or overflowing or or bubbling over with good works. Hebrews 10.14 says that we should embrace love and good works. All judgment in the scripture, all judgment in the scripture is according to works. Think about that. Now, the plaintiff's case for the prosecution. Here's the problem. You have left your first love. It simply means that they had left their first level of commitment to Christ. Indeed, the name Ephesus comes from a verb often used by the New Testament to mean a divorce or to leave behind a legal relationship. Aphiemi is the, the, uh, the word that I'm talking about. And in fact, every letter in the, the I'm calling them letters, I mean lawsuit, Every place that is mentioned in the first two chapters, uh, two and three of Revelation, the title of the church, the location of the church, is what caused the Lord to choose that particular title. So when you go to Ephesus, you go to the root word, apiami, and you find out that they had simply left their first love. They were married to Christ, they were betrothed to Christ, Paul said, I betrothed you a pure virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened? The church left their first love. They were no longer in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the required corrective behavior? First of all, they were to keep remembering from where they had fallen. They were to start remembering apostolic teaching and doctrine. Secondly, they were commanded to repent. This is a lawsuit word in the Old Testament. It means to return to the standard of obedience that God had required in the covenant. In my opinion, the doctrine of repentance is more for believers than for unbelievers. The third response they were expected to make is to start doing again the first works. The word first here does not mean first in time, it means rather first in quality. And let's talk about good works a minute. What is a good work? We don't know many times. We talk about works, but we don't know what it means. 
Good work is whatever relieves someone else's suffering. And use that as a guideline. If they refuse to repent, the Lord threatens to remove their lampstand. In the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples were told that they were collectively the light of the world. And to have your lampstand removed is to make you uh, dark, enable you to no longer exist as a church. The light was based on their performance of the works. If the Lord removes their lampstand and fears he is threatening them with the loss of opportunity to continue as a church. The Lord is not committed to the continuation of any visible church. If the people choose to leave their first love and get caught up into something else, the Lord has no application to bail them out and to continue them in the church. Matters of extenuation and mitigation, the church rejected the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We do not know who these were, but it seems apparent that this group advocated some mixture between biblical Christianity and pagan religion. And that is the great problem of America now. It's not that we're not Christians, it's that we're Christians and something else. We have added something to the worship of Christ and God. We mixed in carnality, we mixed in fun, God doesn't believe in you having fun. He wants to give you joy. The devil's substitute for joy is fun. And nowadays, church services have to be fun. Now, contingent blessing or reward for obedience, chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who overcomes, it's a participle. There is the promise of blessing of eating from the tree of life which we saw in the Garden of Eden. At the end of the book, we see that the tree grows in the New Jerusalem. So, what must you and I overcome? Simple, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three, and I think in my own experience, the flesh is the most difficult. Because Paul said, I die daily. And the question is to the believers, do you die daily? What do you die to? Uh, I was preaching a, a revival at one time, not a revival, special services. Senior pastor had gone uh, to Alabama, of all places. I don't know what he was doing there. Uh, but he had gone to Alabama to preach and he left the church with me. <laughs> And we had a special series of meetings and uh, the spirit started moving and every meeting got more and more intense. We were just rolling along. And I went to the song leader, I said, uh, can we extend the services? I mean, can we go another night? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, Brother John. I've already made my reservation in France. Now, what did that mean? That meant that she had no expectation that the Spirit of God would continue the revival past a certain day. She had it all mapped out. And God doesn't work that way. God can burst forth anytime He wants to and do whatever He chooses to please. But it's our expectation that 
determines whether or not we're participating in the, the revival or not. To overcome, to overcome in this context means to win in a legal action as it does in Romans chapter 3 verse 4. Turn to Romans 3 verse 4 a minute. We'll close. Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, uh, answering the question, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true in the sense of being faithful, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That is the goal of every believer because, as I'll share with you the next time we meet, only the overcomers go in the rapture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together with this lovely group of people. I pray that some of the things that I've said will be of value to understanding the meaning of the significance of your scripture. Be with us today as we fellowship uh, in our anticipation of the time when we sit at the Lamb Supper, Bridal Supper, and fellowship with each other again in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.